And this is Mike. And this is Rock and Vino, the podcast where we talk about wine and music and how the two go so well together. You can find past shows all over the web. You can find them on Spotify, the Google Play Store, Apple Podcasts, rockandvino.com. Check out the social media, uh, the social media links, Facebook and Twitter, at Rock and Vino. Like and subscribe. You can get new episodes delivered every week. And as you mentioned, always kind of trying to fuse the music world and the wine world. And, and I think we have a guy this week who really... You know, has has done both really well, and so it'll it'll be fun to uh, to dive into the world of Bruce Cohn, who is uh, joining us now. Hey, hey, Bruce, how's it going? Very well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it, and I don't know if I infused it or re- confused it, but I did both. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, let's start off with what you're doing right now. the The new wine new wine project is is Trestle Trestle Glen, correct? Trestle Glen Vineyards. It's a part of the property uh, that was once B.R. Cohn Olive Hill Vineyards. Uh, it's the portion that I live on, uh, where my home is uh, behind B.R. Cohn Winery. I have 21 acres in the back uh, that I retained after I sold B.R. Cohn uh, in 2015. And uh, the vineyards there are Cabernet and Zinfandel, and they went into the B.R. Cohn wines since they were planted in. 2005 and in uh, in the late 90s, so uh, it's they're proven vineyards. Uh, if you drank B.R. Cone Olive Hill Cab or B.R. Cone Olive Hill Zin, you drank the wine from Trestle Glen. Very nice. And um, and who is your winemaker for Trestle Glen Vineyards? Well, it's my winemaker from B.R. Cone. Uh, when I sold the winery. Uh, they didn't continue with my winemaker, Tom Montgomery. Tom was my winemaker for 14 years, uh, the last 14 years, uh, before I sold. And he's continuing to make these wines in the same style that we did, you know, with the uh, B.R. Cone Olive Hill Estate Cabs. Nice. And uh, they're going to be very, very good. And when will yeah. those wines be released? Uh, well, the first release will be this year. 17, um, an aging in French oak uh, since we made it. And it will be about, well, September when it will be shipped to, uh, we have so far, you know, it's a very, this is a small, very high-end, small lot uh, production. And I was making 85,000 cases of wine at B.R. Cone, and this wow. is going to be about 600 cases. <laughs> so wow. there's a big difference. Mm-hmm. But we it gives... Tom a real chance to really show his expertise and, and bring the best out of these vineyards and not blend them together with the other grapes and so forth. This is going to be a total small estate offering. Uh, we have 280 customers so far uh, for the 600 cases, and we're, uh, you know you can call in to Trestle Glen Vineyards uh, or go online uh, to TrestleGlenVineyards.com and sign up. It's very allocated, and once it's gone, it's gone. So there isn't that much, and it's real good. Now, you mentioned you work with the winemaker going back, I think you said 14 years. What's kind of your collaboration when you're creating new wines? Uh, do you sort of 
do you tell him what you're looking for and kind of let him do his magic? Or how do you guys work together on that? Well, the, the vineyard really dictates the wine. Uh, the winemaker guides it and makes it as good as he can make that example of what that vineyard produces. Um, and that's the way we always made, you know, be our cone wines was uh, we had great vineyards and that's what made the great wine. So the winemaker, we've had, I've had some of the best winemakers in the country from Helen Turley to Mary Edwards and Steve McCrosty and over my 45 years, you know, in the wine business. But uh, Tom is, uh, was the longest tenure with me and knew the vineyards, knew, knows Trestle Glen inside and out since I planted it. He was there in, uh, you know, if anybody can make great wine from these vineyards, it'll be him for sure. He's a Fresno graduate. He's teaching at Fresno State right now, uh, winemaking, and uh, he's never got the radar on him like Helen Turley or Mary Edwards. He doesn't have his own winery, but he's as competent as anyone in the business. Nice. And so let's talk a little bit about um, about kind of how you got to where you are today. So um, <laughs> I'm trying to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> Now, um, did you, did I read this correctly online that you actually grew up in Sonoma County or partially grew up in Sonoma County? I I moved, uh, my folks moved us from Chicago in 1956 to Forestville, California. Oh, wow. That was a big change. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. From Chicago to Forestville. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not much bigger now than it was then, but in 1956, it was very small and, uh, of all things, uh, we went from Chicago city folks to starting the first grade A goat dairy in Northern California in 1957. Oh, wow. And I spent my childhood milking goats and making feta goat's cheese for people to buy. Delicious. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No one knew what it was then, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were missing out back in the day. But yeah, I milked 115 goats twice a day by hand seven days a week when I was 10. Wow, wow. Yeah, for, for my childhood, yeah. So that was real work. Yeah. Making wines a little, is a little easier than milking <laughs> goats. <laughs> Dairy people should get a lot more credit than they do. <laughs> and um, so growing up in Sonoma County, uh, how did you, um, I guess, get involved with, with getting into music? Just bad luck. It was just, you know, <laughs> I was at the wrong place at the wrong time. No, I basically uh, worked with my brother to start with. Marty, my younger brother, uh, was the one that was really destined to be in the music business and entrenched in uh, wanting to be a producer, record producer and recording engineer. And uh, I was not really that motivated to do that i was more of an outdoors person and you know fishing and hunting and riding motorcycle dirt bikes and so forth and my brother was always in the house playing with tape recorders and listening to records and uh he kind of drafted me into helping him Mm. back in the 60s um and he went we both worked at channel 20 in san francisco we got degrees in uh, radio and television from uh, CSM, uh, College of San Mateo. Mm. They had an on-the-air radio and TV station, and 
we got degrees there and he went to work at channel 20 i went to colorado to buy a cattle ranch with my dad wow. which we didn't do and he called me and said there was a job opening at channel 20 and i'd have to go get a radio telephone fcc license to get the job but if i wanted it you know there were only 27 jobs in san francisco at that time for that kind of a job uh and only so 20 I jumped on it wow yeah I, I jumped on it went to chicago and went to school for six months and learned how to take the fcc test which only 13 percent of the people pass <laughs> and uh, i got brainwashed into uh taking this extremely difficult test that it's probably something i i don't know how i passed it but i did and uh went to work at channel 20 from there my brother went on to be house engineer at Pacific Recording in San Mateo where the Grateful Dead and Santana and mm-hmm. Metallica, all these bands were rehearsing and recording down in San Mateo. And he was the house engineer. And I used to go visit him there. I worked the swing shift at Channel 20, 4 to midnight. And during the day, I'd go down and hang out and you know see him record these bands and do all this work. And um, one thing led to another. And we started a rehearsal hall in San Francisco in 1968 on 3rd and Howard Street, which is now uh, Moscone Center. But in those days, it was a derelict warehouse that was being condemned, and we <laughs> made it into a rehearsal hall for the Grateful Dead. And wow. It's a Beautiful Day and Sea Train and all these local bands to come in and rehearse. Fly Stone, all those people came in. We had a big room where they could set up their stage gear and rehearse. There was no place in San Francisco to do that at the time. And uh, so that's how I started to meet all these artists through that in the recording studio. And I kind of just started managing a band called Ace when I was 19. And Neil Sean from Journey was the guitar player. He was 14. Wow. And uh, Corey Larios, the keyboard player for Pablo Cruz, was the keyboard player. Mm-hmm. He was 16. I was the old guy. I was 19. <laughs> and Stevie Nicks came in and auditioned for vocals. Dang. Uh, during that time, <laughs> she was from Palo Alto, and so was Neil. And this all uh, culminated in 1968. And Santana had their first big record. And Greg Raleigh, the keyboard player from Santana was from Palo Alto as well. And he met Neil at a music store in Palo Alto and saw him burning on the guitar at 13 and, and just was keeping his eye on him. And then while we were rehearsing this band Ace, of course, nobody wrote any songs. So we were a little behind in that way, <laughs> but they were all great players. And um, Greg offered him to join Santana after their first 2 million selling record. And Neil came into rehearsal one day and said, hey, I got an offer to join Santana. I said, really? I said, who made you the offer? Because I didn't believe him. He said, Greg Raleigh. Well, I knew Greg. And I said, well, that's a real offer. He said, what do you offer you? He said, we just come in as an equal partner. I said, goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when Neil joined Santana. And we all split up. And Neil went his way. And Stevie went her way. And. Corey went his way, and I went my way, and 
one day I was at the studio with my brother in San Mateo, and these two guys came in, looked like bikers, <laughs> and uh, said they had a band from San Jose. And Steve, yeah, Skip Spence brought them in. He was the drummer for a group called Moby Grape. Mm. And Moby Grape, people don't know that well, but they were probably the defining sound for California music back in the day where the Eagles and Jackson Brown and all those people, I think, uh, listened to Moby Grape. And Skip brought them in. Um, and one guy was 300 pounds. And, <laughs> The other guy had hair down to his waist, and they had old greasy Levi's and vests on. We thought they looked like bikers, but they didn't have any motorcycles. <laughs> and uh, my brother told them to come back the next day with the rest of the band, and we'd audition them. And uh, they came back with the bass player and uh, the uh, drummer and the, the other uh, guitar player, and they sat up in the studio. And they started playing their songs. And we, Marty and I looked at each other, my brother, and said, these guys have got something special. <laughs> we could hear it, you know? Mm-hmm. Creedence Clearwater was big at that time. And uh, they kind of had that feeling of, you know, Creedence, but they had vocal harmonies, three-part harmonies, even at that stage in their career. And that really turned out to be something great. Mm-hmm. And uh, we thought that set them apart. And uh, my brother recorded a demo. We sent it to Warner Brothers, and a year later, they had a record deal. Wow. And I quit the job at the TV station <laughs> and went to work. Nice. And that's how it started. Now you're 19 years. That was 50 years ago. Wow. Now, now you're 19 years old managing your first band. At that time, did you knew, know it was something that you wanted to do? Or was it just sort of figure, figuring it out as you, as you went along? Well, yeah, it was something I wanted to do. Um, but I, you know, I was really still working at the TV station while I was doing it. So it was kind of like a, a you know, part-time thing at that point. And um, when we got the deal... I had to get serious, you know, because they needed all my help. And I quit my job and took a flyer, and we ended up on food stamps and brown rice and making 200 bucks a night and splitting it six ways for years until we finally got the hit Listen to the Music. Very yeah, cool. It was not easy, but mm-hmm. we did it. How have you seen, uh, mentioned that was 50 years ago that was, how have you seen sort of the, the San Francisco scene change over that time? Is it, is it different well, than it was then? All those, the Bay Area band, I mean, the Bay Area was a, one of the best music scenes ever, you know, anywhere. Um, it, from the 60s on, on up to today, it's still producing great music. But, you know, in those days, we, I lived in the heyday. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 70s, you know, it was so just <laughs> so many great, so many great bands, great music, great songs, great artists. Um, just, you know, I, I was blessed to be able to be part of that. 
the two worlds of kind of your farming side and your music side have kind of intertwined <laughs> back and forth. Well, see, my mom and dad were both musicians. That's the uh, thing I need to tell you. That, that'll do we, it. <laughs> and my, my aunt and uncle have played cellist and violin for the Chicago Symphony for years. Wow. And my dad was a tenor. He was Juilliard school trained in New York. He was a tenor. He sang Italian arias. And my mom, professionally in Chicago, my, my mom was a backup singer for Frank Sinatra when he played the clubs. That's amazing. And uh, that's how they met wow. in the Chicago. And so I was raised around serious music. My brother was too. And they tried to get me to play every instrument on the planet. But <laughs> I'd rather be fishing or something. You know, I didn't, I didn't have the, the fortitude to rehearse and practice so many hours. Like most of these musicians, their whole lives are in their bedroom playing their instrument, you know, get, trying to get good at it. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't have that fortitude to stay in the house and do that but i did have the love of music kind of ingrained in my dna now uh with with such a a vast history in both wine now and music of course um how do you how do you see the two going together do you see any any um like commonalities between the two yeah, I've, I've likened it for years when people ask me that question. In that, you know, music is an ever-changing variable product that people, you know, these songs come to them, they write them, they develop them, they put them on records, and then it goes into the system, and they go to the record company, the record company gives it to the wholesaler, the wholesaler sells it to the store, and you know, that CD or in those days, eight tracks and then vinyl before that, that was the same three-tier distribution kind of system, except music was more two-tier. It was a music company and the distributing to the retailers. But it really is similar because wine is a variable product and it changes every year. The weather makes a different character in the wine. No matter what you do, the wine's going to be what it is for that year. Mm-hmm. And music is kind of a variable thing that changes and morphs from, you know, one decade to another. And wine, I think, is kind of the same. And the way you sell it is similar in the music business to the way you sell uh, wine nice. as well. Now, wh- so that's wh- the commonality. What point along the way did you get introduced to wine and find that it was a thing that, I mean, because you had the farming background, but at what point did you discover that wine was a, a world that you might wanted to get into? Well, what happened is uh, when, we, when the band finally hit, and we were on the road 200 days a year touring all over the world, um, we were pretty burnt uh, coming off the road from these tours. And in 72, when that started, I immediately, I was living in that time in San Francisco, and I moved to Marin for a short time. And I started looking for a home back in Sonoma County, where I, because my wife at that time was pregnant with my first son, and I wanted to raise our family like I was raised, Mm. in the country, not in the city. And um, I started, and for two years I looked for a property that I could purchase and move up 
to from Marin, and I did in 1974, find this place. In between tours, I came off the road and found this 46-acre property that was being uh, a closed bid situation. And I made a bid and went back out on the road the next day. <laughs> and uh, I won the bid, but I really overpaid. <laughs> and, uh, of course, at that time, you know, 355000 for 46 acres was a ton of money. Yeah. My dad paid 16000 for the ranch in Forestville for 50 acres. So I thought, boy, I really overpaid. But as it turned out, it was a great investment. And uh, so when I bought it, it had 14 acres of grapes planted. And I named it Olive Hill after the eight acres of 100-year-old olive trees that were around the house uh, there in Glen Ellen. And um, I started to see, well, i got to learn how to grow grapes now because I've got these grapes. So I bought these books on viticulture Mm. from UC Davis, from Winkler's book, and I'm reading them on the airplane. We're flying around doing concerts, and I'm reading viticulture books, and the band's going, what the hell are you doing reading viticulture books? You're managing music groups. I said, well, I got this vineyard, and it sure doesn't look like the pictures in this book. I can figure out what's wrong with it. And that's how I learned. But I was very lucky early on. I started a pension and profit-sharing plan for the band in 1972, and no one had heard of that in the music business at that time. Most people were broke when they got out of the music business and I didn't want to be broke and I didn't want my band to be broke. Mm-hmm. So I started doing things to build and I built commercial real estate for them, all kinds of stuff. And wow. one thing, the, the administrator for the pension plans for the band was a wine collector, a guy named Stan Birdie was in Petaluma, right? Still known today, and he was he was friends with Charlie Wagner, the founder of Camus Vineyards in Rutherford, and he saw how I was out on the tractor in between tours. I was planting grapes and trying to fix the vineyards that were there that were half dead. And he said, "Let me take you over and introduce you to this." I buy I buy wine from Charlie. He had just started making varietal wines, Cabernet to be specific because most of the wineries then there was only 35 wineries you know there was Krug Engelnook Italian Swiss Louis Martini jug wines there were half gallons and there was Chablis and Hardy Burgundy and no one you know they're just starting to make varietal wine you know Cabernet Pinot Noir Zinfandel Mm -hmm. and uh, Sutter Home was one of the first to do white Zin and uh, anyway I, get, I digress. <laughs> anyway, so I still always um, laugh when you show I met, people. So he took me to meet Charlie Wagner at the at his house, which he had a little winery next to his house. And Charlie took one look at me, and I had an afro that was about two feet wide, and I was wearing leather <laughs> pants and high heeled boots and snakeskin. And uh, he said, "This is Bruce Cohn. Charlie, I'd like you to." Uh, no, he's. He's got a vineyard over in Glen Ellen. He said, you're sure he's not growing something else over there besides vineyard? <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he looks suspect to me. You know, Charlie was an old redneck uh, kind of guy with rubber boots and coveralls on. And uh, I said, no, Charlie, I know 
I was raised in Forestville on a deer. You know, I tried to tell him I was in the FFA. I judged cattle. You know, I did all this stuff in agriculture, but I don't know anything about grapes. And he said, well, if you're a friend of Stan's, I'll help you out. He mentored me for four years. Wow. Taught me everything about clones, rootstocks, grafting, planting. Drip system was brand new then. Nobody, everyone had dry farm grapes. So I learned how to put in a drip system to get my vines growing. And Charlie said, bring me, in 78, he said, bring me some grapes, Bruce. He said, you're selling all your grapes to Sebastiani and all these guys, Kenwood Winery, they're throwing it in with all their Central Valley stuff. And you have no idea what quality your grapes are. And I said, well, I think they're pretty good, but they pay me good money for them. He says, well, bring me some and let me make some wine. So I brought him three tons of cab on an old 46 Dodge truck. <laughs> Barely got over the, I took it over the Trinity Road, over the Rutherford grade, the Trinity grade, Oakville grade, I mean, and uh, almost blew up the truck doing it. I got there at 10 o'clock at night, and Charlie was mad because he wanted to be in bed. He got up at 5, and I unloaded the grapes and went home. He told me to go around the other way because my brakes were on fire coming down the grade. So I went home, and he called me six months later. He said, get over here and uh, try this wine I made. So I came over, and I really didn't know anything about wine. I was drinking Cuervo and Dos Equis with the band, <laughs> you know, and who was going to get the worm in the bottom of the bottle. And uh, really, you know, high-end wines were not in my forte at that time. But uh, he said, Charlie's tasting room was an old door on top of a barrel <laughs> with a knob still in the door. And he put his Camus cab on the table, on the door, and say, here, try this. He tried my wine. He said, here's, here's your, here's your, I took him Pinot Noir I had at the time, which was a bad variety for my microclimate. But he said, that, I said, well, that tastes pretty good. I didn't know. I was just taking it. And he said, that's okay. But he says, try this Cabernet of yours. So I pick up the glass and I go, oh, that's really good. Like I knew, you know. <laughs> and he says, uh, he said, he says, that's not good, Bruce. He says, that's the best cab I've ever had from Sonoma. He says, you're missing the boat. He says, I want you to go home, call August Sebastiani, tell him you want a vineyard-designated wine, you want to keep your grapes separate, and you want Olive Hill on the label. Mm. So I called August the next morning, 6 a.m. August was at his desk. I said, August, I need a vineyard-designated wine. He said, Bruce. He says, I don't even have a tank small enough to put your grapes in. He was doing six million cases of wine a year at that time, <laughs> August. It was, he was laughing at me. He was saying, we don't do vineyard designation here. And that was the end of the conversation. Click. <laughs> you know, that, that was a long conversation with August. And uh, so I went to other wineries and started selling them grapes because he wouldn't do it. So I sold to Ravenswood, Gunlock Bunchu, Kenwood, and they did the vineyard designation of my Olive Hill vineyard, and they all started winning gold medals Wow! with my wine. And this is going on for 10 years while I'm on the road with the band. These guys are winning all these gold medals with Olive Hill Cab. 
1984, I had signed this band Night Ranger, and they hit, and we had a big career with them. And at that point, I said, well, if I ever had a chance to start a winery, this would be it, because this is the second chance for me with income to do it. I didn't know how much money it took, really. <laughs> it was a lot more than I had, but um, I decided to start the winery, BR. Well, it, wasn't, it was going to be Olive Hill Winery in 1984. So from 74 to 84, I sold grapes. And then in 84, I made, I had, August maybe plant Chardonnay on the property uh, because he wanted white grapes. No one was buying red wine in the 70s. They wanted white wine. So I had to plant Chardonnay, which was not good in my microclimate. My microclimate was only good for cab because it's so hot. And it just, Chardonnay, it ripened too fast. You need to be out in the West County for shard to get really good shard or cooler climate than the microclimate right in Glen Ellen because it's about seven degrees warmer there than the rest of Sonoma Valley. So the shard you could take the paint off your car with if you spilled it on it. <laughs> and it was so acidic. But I bottled 25,000 bottles of shard with Olive Hill on the label and a guy in Temecula sued me for the name. He had an Olive Hill nursery. He didn't oh. sue me. He notified me mm -hmm. that he would sue me if I used the name. <laughs> a sternly worded had, letter. <laughs> yeah, because he was also putting out a wine from his nursery called Olive Hill Nursery under the same label. Mm. So my attorney said, well, first one in the market wins. So he got in the market before I did. With an 83, I had an 84 shard. He had an 83 Riesling or something. And he got in the market first, and he won the name. So I had to hand-soak 25,000 bottles of shard and take the labels off oh. and come up with a new name. So <laughs> that's how I started. And uh, I couldn't come up with another name. I just didn't like anything. You know, we were trying Olive Mountain, Olive Valley, something, you know, any derivative. So finally... My label guy, Chuck House, who's now famous for Fog's Leap labels and the Smithsonian, Smithsonian, and my label is very, he did this very distinctive with the olive branch. And Chuck said, well, why don't you just use your name? And I said, well, who the hell is going to buy cone wine and I'll sell it in the Catskills in New York and Miami is the only place it will sell. It's not, you know, Mondavi. You have to have an eye on the end of your name to sell wine. So no, you don't. He said, try it. So I said, well, okay, put Bruce Cohen on the label, I guess. I said, I don't really like it, but I don't know what else to do. I got to get this wine out. So he sent me notes saying, Bruce Cohen doesn't fit on the label. It's too long. He said, what are your initials? I said, well, BR. He said, how about BR Cohen? I said, great. That's how we got the name. <laughs> it all works out. Very nice. And it worked. It yeah. worked. Yeah. We're in 46 states and selling a lot of wine. Mm hmm So cool. I was wrong. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> which I've been several times. But uh, it was a great, great start. And then, you know, I've, I got lucky and met Helen Turley through Gulak Bunchu Winery. She was a cellar rat there 
that she wanted to make wine. It was her first winemaking job. I think she made a little wine at Stonegate before that, and and she said she'd come over and make my wine. So I said, go have it. Help yourself. Well, I didn't know she turned out to be one of the number one winemakers in the country. Mm-hmm. Paid her yeah. 25000 a year. And she made uh, 84 Olive Hill Cab, 85, 86, and 87. We got 94, 94, 93, 94. Wow. And no one in Sonoma had ever had 90s ratings for their cabs until I put those out. And that put us on the map. And then uh, at some point later, you sort of had the opportunity to kind of come full circle and bring your worlds together, kind of bringing in some of these bands that you were managing to play uh, at the winery. Was it cool to have those those two worlds kind of collide and uh, with the music and the wine? Well, I did it on purpose. Um, basically, um, we got involved and the drummer got involved with the veterans back in the mid-80s when I was starting the winery. And he read this book about how bad the vets had it coming out of Vietnam and no one was taking care of them. They were living on the street. And we took up the cause and started doing benefits for the veterans. And then we did golf tournaments too down in LA Mm. to raise money for um, all kinds of charities, but mostly the vets. And uh, we did some for United Way and different things. And from that, I told Keith he passed away and I told him I I would take that torch and keep it going and I started the concerts in 1986 um, and I did the first one in the high school in Sonoma football field and I had Graham Nash and Nicolette Larson and Little Feet play in the football field there and we made 800 bucks it wasn't (laughs) a big success it gave me the idea to do something bigger so I, I built this little amphitheater out at the behind my house that was too small for a vineyard it was a hillside that looked west over the vineyards and um, decided to make it a little amphitheater music first we did it on a flatbed truck in my olive grove the first year with hay bales and stuff and then I built the amphitheater and started to get serious about it and then I started you know well, for 30 years, I did the charity concerts. We raised over $7 million for the vets um, over those that period of time. We had hundreds of artists play at the Aircon Winery Amphitheater there uh, over the last 30 years. Did you at all ever yeah. find it um, challenging to kind of... Um, kind of bring awareness to what it is that you were doing with, you know, kind of fusing music and wine and having these awesome concerts in, in your backyard, essentially? Well, we drank a lot of wine at the concerts, I'll tell you that. <laughs> no shortage of wine uh, at the concerts, and uh, everybody came from all over the world, actually, for these concerts. And some people came for 20 years straight. Wow. Every year, they'd come from Australia, they'd come from East Coast, they'd come from Texas. I mean, this audience was not just the Sonoma crowd. It was an international crowd mm-hmm. in that little amphitheater there. And I've had some of the best artists in the world play there and some great memories of that time, for sure. Yeah, I would say that was really sort of bridging the music and wine culture before. We see it so often now. It's it's 
so it's commonplace now to you know have the, the music and wine worlds clash, but I'm sure at the well, time Ma- it was Mondavi kind of a new did idea. it early with their little. They did a little concerts in their patio area at, at Mondavi, you know. But they did they didn't do rock and roll, right? You know, they right. didn't do mm-hmm. pop, they didn't do contemporary music. They did other things, and that's where I got the idea to do it mm. at my place. But I, 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 the reservoir of people I knew were, you know, the Steve Millers and Leonard Skinners and Hart and Band Company and Willie Nelson and Keith Christoffers. I mean, you name it, they played there. And uh, it was just, uh, you know, my approach, using the connections I had with my booking agents and all the people I had met over the years in the music business, a lot of artists, and calling them personally to come and do these benefits. It was a lot of work. Mm-hmm. to do that, but it was doing a lot of good, so I kept doing it. Now, I know one of the your other... The last one was the best. The last one was, you know, Ringo Starr and Chicago and America. Oh, yeah. And, That's amazing. And, and Greg Allman and the Doobie Brothers and all these great acts played. That concert was... I moved it downtown Sonoma because it got so big. Mm-hmm. And we did it at the Field of Dreams the last two down there and it was that was um it got really big now i know one of your other passions is uh is is classic cars is that still uh something something you enjoy something uh world you're involved with absolutely yeah i'm a gearhead um (laughs) i've been working on cars since i was you know in high school and customizing them and i grew up in that hot rod era you know of the 50s and 60s muscle cars and 32 Fords and, you know, all those kinds of cars. And I built them and I've had many, many cars over the years. I still do it. Yeah. I still love that. It's my hobby. Right now, uh, so people don't, uh, don't forget since it's limited production, if people are interested in Trestle Glen, uh, what should they do? Should they go on the web? Should they, is there a number they should call? Well, what? It's easy. There is a, there's a registration form on trestleglenvineyards.com. You can go on, there's a whole website up and, um, you can sign up and, uh, there's, you know, not that much wine, but first people to sign up will get that 600 cases and uh, that's what it's going to be because that's what the vineyard produces and it's going to be very good and guarantee it or their money back (laughs) (laughs) perfect well we'll be sure to uh post those links on to um our show notes that people can easily find that that'd be great if we could get the word out about the website yeah absolutely fantastic yeah yeah we're excited i know we'll We'll try to get in on some of that allocation. Those sound really amazing. <laughs> it's really good stuff. I've been tasting it out of the barrels. It's delicious. Very nice. So well, uh, you can count on it. Okay. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat with us and sharing your mm-hmm. your really amazing stories. And it's um, one long story, you know. It's a forty-five year story, so <laughs> it's a good I get one. A little wordy, but there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> definitely. Well, no, yeah. we definitely enjoyed it. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for calling in.